This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Now, one story that struck um, my, it struck me earlier and really caught my attention about governments finally getting the message that they're going to have to run exponentially bigger budget deficits to keep economies afloat as the coronavirus brings the world to a sudden halt. So there's lots of scrambling going on. I do want to talk a little bit about the economy uh, and what we're seeing. Diane Swank, uh, certainly friend to Bloomberg, chief economist at Grant Thornton. She's on the phone from Chicago. Diane, good to have you here. You too. We, you know, we were talking earlier about folks who have seen a lot of different cycles, market cycles, economic cycles. You certainly have seen several. Where does this stack up? There's just nothing to compare it to. The extraordinary, just absolute stop in economic activity, that's nothing that there is any precedence for. I mean, the losses that we saw compound during the height of the crisis were still done over the course of weeks and months, not literally overnight as cities were shut down. Um, We're shutting down manufacturing and the service sector, everything all at once, and there's no ability for many consumers to actually go out and spend even if they do get these stopgap measures. That doesn't mean the stopgap measures aren't absolutely Absolutely necessary. We can't stop a recession from coming. Um, we do have to go through this virus-induced recession, but we can keep people afloat in COVID-tainted waters that allow us to have a better rebound once we can ramp up again and the outbreak has abated. And so, Diane, let's talk about the Fed, because obviously, you know, if we were to come up with almost a metaphor, you've got Jay Powell sort of running through the arsenal, as it were, opening every cabinet that he can, taking out every weapon. What's been the most effective? What else does he and the team need to do here, or can they do? Well, you know, it's interesting. The um, op-ed piece written by former Fed chairs Bernanke and Yellen, who actually, you know, have the value of hindsight and knowing exactly how bad a financial crisis can be, suggesting that the Fed, you know, reopen, um, revisit Congress and restart the long-term asset-backed lending facility program that allows them to lend more aggressively and get credit to households and businesses, but also asking Congress for permission to um, actually buy in the corporate bond market, which is seizing up. has a value of hindsight and knowing the actual, you know, we don't want this health crisis. It is already metastasizing into a financial crisis. We have to stop that. And um, the Fed is going to need a lot more latitude. And actually, their wings were clipped in the wake of the crisis because Congress didn't want them to have that latitude. Well, now you want them to have a lot more latitude. So literally, they can start using the 3D printer to print up a new arsenal of tools to deal with and intervene in credit markets where they belong to keep the oil of the market machinery sort of in there. Without it, the market itself will seize up the entire economy, will seize up credit markets are that oil of the market machine. So keeping that machinery uh, of the market as well as uh, the economy running, Diane, at this point, as much as we can at this point, during the financial crisis, we got an unbelievable amount of coordination, I felt, uh, along all different branches of the government, uh, of central banks, of bankers. Uh, I really felt like Uh, the global community we saw come together. Are we seeing that necessary coordination that we need to combat this on a health level as well as a market level and economy uh, level? 
Sadly, I wish we had a lot more coordination. I mean, first of all, we have fewer tools um, than we did back then. You really had a sense that all ores were in the water globally to try to get us from turbulent waters to land during the height of the financial crisis. The coordination has, you know, we've seen, you know, a lot of breaks in our coordination, and that is showing up in not only our dealing with the crisis, but how the crisis is fed from country to country. And I think, you know, the, the thing we always forget is we all have a common enemy here. We have to fight this global phenomenon that is a health crisis together, and the common enemy is the new coronavirus, the novel coronavirus. And doing that collectively, testing, increasing the number of tests, being able to take lessons from countries like Korea and Singapore that didn't have as bad of a disruption from the viral outbreak and the the surge in cases as we're seeing elsewhere, including here, that's important because this is not the last time we're going to have a pandemic. We have right, to right. get the lessons from this and move forward. Diane, only got about a minute left here. Uh, when will we see the full economic impact of this? I know that's a really difficult question, but when will we start to at least get the the, the sort of parameters or some sense of our arms around it? Any modeling that you guys are doing? Oh, we're doing lots of modeling, and um, it's really hard because you get a decline in GDP that has a disproportionate decline in jobs. Mm. And, you know, we're looking at something close to right now, a high of, you know, close to 7.8% on the unemployment rate. Um, And then as things come back, um, and that's almost over 7 million jobs, which is close to the financial crisis, it could be more than that because of just the sheer magnitude of people that are literally overnight losing jobs. Um, that is what's really hard. That is not, you know, the magnitude of losses in GDP don't compare to that because um, it, it, you don't have the same kind of reaction function. The models, you have to break them because you have this extraordinary disruption, but you can also have a very rapid ramp up after we get through the crisis and learn even with antiviral drugs and better testing and better leverage, better technology of how to mitigate the effects of the outbreak. We could be able to see a much bigger ramp up later on right. in 2021. Well, and I think your point about this isn't the last time we're going to be dealing with these kinds of situations. So we got, we, we really have to figure out the playbook and really prevent it uh, and know how to be prepared for it. Diane Swank, thank you so much. We know this is a busy time. Diane Swank, Chief Economist at Grant Thornton, uh, joining us on the phone from Chicago. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly. On Bloomberg Radio. Let's turn now to the medical side of this crisis. Lisa Romano joins us, Chief Nursing Officer for Cypher Health on the phone in New York City. And Lisa, great to have you with us. And I should say, like anyone in the medical world, uh, we really owe a a deep debt of gratitude uh, to. So thank you for all the work you're doing. Help us understand the screening side of this and the testing side because – that is at the core of making all of this better, right? Yes, yes. Thank you for having me. Uh, I I can tell you that, uh, you know, COVID-19 continues to progress uh, rapidly, you know, seeing increasing number of cases. And we know that there are steps to take to protect yourself. But at the end of the day, um, it is essential that we perform screening before anyone comes into the hospital uh, for any procedure or any visit. Um, we need to keep the healthcare providers safe uh, so that we have people to take care of those that are sick. So the screening that um, we are looking at following, you know, CDC guidelines and 
also now working um, with many hospitals in the U.S. that are taking care of uh, patients with the virus is looking for symptoms like a dry cough, fever greater than 100.3, um, and shortness of breath. Um, the good news is that most patients uh, do recover from infection with COVID-19, but we do see patients at a point that they start to experience symptoms of um, respiratory distress, uh, you know, difficulty breathing, that they do need care. So screening is essential, um, and then following that up with testing. And we have seen that there is more availability of lab testing now, um, not quite as um, easy to get uh, yet, but certainly better than it was last week at this time. Um, and, you know, part of that laboratory testing is actually getting test results to right. you. And, you know, that has been a challenge for um, clinical providers that are right. busy taking care of surge. So give us an idea, though, because I do think there's so much still confusion among the communities uh, across America about should I get tested? Should I not get tested in terms of signs? So what is this program, this REACH, you know, screening program? You guys, it sounds like, or this screening program uh, encourages hospitals and healthcare systems to actually reach out to the community. Yeah, so our, our program uses telephone technology that allows the uh, person who has been called to actually interact via the phone or by text message um, using prompts, and we can do the symptom checker asking those questions. Um, and if they do answer a question in a way that it triggers a you know positive symptom screening, it is escalated to a live person. So it's essentially triaging patients. And at that point, um, when the you know clinical provider calls that patient back, they're able to say, um, we're going to reschedule your procedure or, you can seek care in this location. Um, telemedicine has become um, very valuable during this crisis where, you know, you can through a, you know, telephone screen, computer screen, actually see the doctor. So um, screening is essential. So how worried should we be about the numbers just spiking so dramatically here, Lisa, as more testing comes through? Um. I have been a nurse for 32 years. I, I have never seen anything quite like this. Um, and I, I will say that I, I am concerned. Um, I think that part of the reason we're seeing this very dramatic rise, I mean, literally from yesterday to today is shocking, right? There's currently the CDC is saying there's 7,038 cases in the U.S., um, is that we have more testing available, right? So some of that is that we did have these patients before. We just right. didn't know that they had the COVID-19 virus. That said, um, what we've learned from looking at the progression of the virus in other countries is that the escalation continues, and it continues to ramp up, and there's that bell-shaped curve that everyone sees on television, right. you know, trying to, you know, um, trying to flatten that out. Um, the best way we can do that 
is through this now trendy word of social distancing. Right. Uh, you know, but that's difficult to do. So, you know, I mean, I think, I mean, everybody should do their best and we should absolutely try to do that. But there are some people that do need to go to work that, you know, do need to go out, do need to go to the hospital, certainly the healthcare providers. And that's right. where you right. need to take measures of, right. you know, protecting yourself. Well, we really appreciate your uh, time, um, Lisa. Thank you so much. We know it's a, a hectic time for you as well. Lisa Romano, she's Chief Nursing Officer at Cypher Health uh, here in New York City. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on this Wednesday. Carol Master, along with Jason Kelly, both of us broadcasting from home, uh, as are our next uh, members of our team. Vernon Silver is Projects and Investigations Reporter at Bloomberg News. He is on the phone from Rome. Joel Weber is Editor of Bloomberg Business Week on the phone in Brooklyn. And this is all about, Vernon, your story, um, really an important story to read. And it talks about what happened in Italy specifically. And you talk about that there really was a huge denial that was going on. And now we see kind of how this virus is playing out there. Talk to us a little bit about your story in the magazine this week. Yeah, I mean, what, what was amazing is, is to realize as this unfolded was that we in Italy were going through something that people have gone through in epidemics through centuries, which is that at first you think that it's somebody else's problem and you, you know, just elbow it away as, as the head of the big uh, hospital in, in Milan who deals with these things says. And then next, it's next door and it's like, well, my neighbor has it. And then, and then you have it in your house and it's like, well, it's not a big deal. And then finally, you're, you know, you're totally wrecked and you're all sick and everybody dies. And then, oh, yeah, hmm. that was a problem. Um, and this is exactly what had happened here. And talking to people and seeing, you know, even what was going on in social media, it looked like people in the UK or in France or certainly in the US were only two weeks behind us in that process. And so, uh, Vernon, what are the lessons? I mean, I, th- I feel like we are all in the United States looking to Italy with a combination of terror and anticipation and also desperately wanting to know what, if anything, can we do differently? What lessons are to be learned here? I mean, one thing to do is, is to take seriously, you know, any, anything that you, that you hear, even if it's not required. And one big change that happened, and this is a slow process through, through a week of people suggesting things and then requiring things, you know, the, the north of the country being locked down, the south of the country being locked down. At some point, if things go in this direction, you're going to want to be pretty much completely locked down and um, well supplied and following the rules. And one thing one thing that was really clear is that when there were rules and again, you know, totalitarian tendencies aren't things that a lot of people like. But when there are rules, it makes a lot of people happier about knowing that everybody else is going to be following the rules and they don't have to be self-conscious about following the rules about what's going to be healthier uh, for everyone. And the, the other thing that, that came out is that it's a, kind of a filter to see what sort of people surround you, whether they are people with empathy mm. or people who are only thinking for themselves. It's, there's a lot that's going to come out on the other end of this about discovering who you are, who your you know, neighbors are, who, who, you're, you know, who your friends are and who the people in your community are. So, Joel, so why is good to that end? You know, I just think um, a lot of when we read this story, when Vernon filed it, I think we were it was like a punch to the gut mm. in many ways because it was like this thing is coming, you know, and we were able to see, you know, see.
see it in advance and you start to almost on a personal level attempt to do some things that could help. Um, but I think the thing that was profound to the story and why I just encourage everybody to read it um, on the terminal or in this week's forthcoming issue or online, the thing that really stuck out is that there's a human side to a catastrophe like this that we can't overlook. And the fact, the, the, the takeaway that I think just struck us and literally provided a sense of awe was that, and Vernon, I would love to hear more from you about this, but at 6 p.m. every evening, Romans are opening their windows and singing together um, out their windows. Um, and if that doesn't give you some chills and maybe even a tear in your eye, I, I don't know what will. Yeah, I mean, this is this is one of the things that we already were in a routine at 6 p.m. every day of hearing the literally the death toll, where mm. a man from civil protection would come on TV and say, this is how many people are infected, this is how many people are dead. Um, and about a week after everyone started watching that, um, once everyone got shut in, they started this new tradition of everyone going to their windows at 6 p.m. and singing. And, and it depends on the neighborhood, and it depends on if there's you know a ringleader who's going to strike up something or has a guitar and or maybe turns the speakers of the stereo out the window and, and, and gets things going. Um, but it is a battle that's constant of people to sort of fight the sadness and the melancholia that's that's always hanging uh, in the air, but there are those moments that make you think, "Oh, right, we're going to pull, we're going to pull through it." And having, you know, this is like a natural disaster. And having covered things like like hurricanes, there's a certain sense of hope um, that you get where you think it's going to be really, really bad. And very often, because people take the right decisions and do the right things along the way and stick together, it, a lot of the time ends up being a lot worse than you thought it would be. And that, and that's, you know. That's how I, I, you know, I, I see this coming out, partly just through the, the character of Italians and how they've come together with this. What I found striking, Vernon, too, and just listening to various coverage and just folks, how they're likening this to going back to World War II and like the bombings of London, where people had to kind of really hunker down, you know, lights were off, everybody was in their homes. Um, but it is, you know, and even the president, I think, talked about, you know, bringing in the Department of Defense. This is a war. It's a health war. Uh, but nonetheless, it requires something that I think for many of us have never seen before. Yeah, and, and I think in the, the war comparison, I mean, there was a moment where the film uh, The Garden of the Finzi Contini uh, came to mind, you know, as I was watching my kid playing tennis. I and mean, part of, um, you know, while getting the, the death toll numbers coming in, part of what that film and, and novel have, uh, you know, as a central idea is this thing where this family that has, you know, World War II encroaching on their lives and they will soon perish continues playing tennis and continues acting as if everything is is normal when in fact they don't realize yet that it's that it's war and it wasn't until you know recent days that in Rome certainly the people realized like you know what it's not cocktail hour right. anymore it's 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 coronavirus time yeah amazing amazing well it's a terrific piece of reporting we always count on you uh vernon for these types of really really important stories and you give it to us straight uh as always vernon silver one of our top reporters joining us from rome joel weber the editor of bloomberg business week joining us on the phone from brooklyn
You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Let's head down to Washington now. Josh Wingrove is their White House correspondent for Bloomberg, joining us from the White House. A busy day, to say the least. This administration really on the front foot at this point trying to stem at least the market uh, reaction and provide some reassurance to consumers and businesses out there. Uh, Josh, tell us the latest. Obviously, the big thing that a lot of people are going on to are checks showing up in, in people's mailboxes. How realistic is this? Where do we stand? Well, I think it looks like it's going to slide into the third bill. The Senate looks poised to vote on the bill that already passed the House while they figure out what to put into the next one. That means, in other words, the big sort of uh, big money items, uh, the stimulus stuff, including those checks, look look like they're going to roll into the next piece of legislation and be a few days or more away. Uh, What we know the administration has asked for is two rounds of checks, $250 billion per round, so $500 billion total sent directly to people. The exact number, sort of dollar value, is both up in the air and looks like it could depend on your situation. For instance, are you lower income? You might get more. Do you have kids? You might get more. So it's still up in the air. There does appear to be bipartisan support on it. Uh, the, the administration's also asking for about $300 billion for small businesses to sort of bridge themselves, I guess, one way or another through this, if they can. Uh, Any one of us that's walked down the street of a major city right now knows what's coming down the pipe right now for restaurants, bars, shops, all these things. They're facing a bit of a a long spring without revenue, as well as $200 billion for bigger corporations, including $50 billion for airlines to try to get them through this. Uh, So really a lot of moving parts on this. The president is also meeting shortly with nurses on the response and has really ratcheted up the wartime language today. That's been a bit of a tone change on Trump saying we're at war with this virus. I have to ask you, yeah, we are totally at war. I feel like that is the new kind of how do you get your head around this. The thing I want to ask you, Josh, um, I think there is an urgency to get programs done to help individuals, to help certainly the small business community, whether it's restaurants and others. Um, But when we're dealing with big business companies, big publicly held companies, there are lots of questions. Um, You know, I'm sure you've heard the stories about, you know, why do we bail out the airlines that when they got this big tax break, they didn't use it to maybe build a safety net for themselves, but instead they did buybacks. So I do wonder, what's the balance of an urgency to get things done quickly because there are folks in small businesses that really need some help right now without doing maybe the wrong thing in terms of rescuing you know, publicly held companies? Yeah, I, I, I think absolutely we're going to hear uh, pushback on that. Um, and I think that's why they're trying to pair it. In other words, it's not just a bailout of the of the airlines, um, uh, but also, you know, paired with those checks to people. But, you know, we're all, we are hearing Repu- Republican opposition um, to that already. And uh, uh, forgive me, I'm just seeing there's some uh, the news no, is flying fast. That's and, the and world. Quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Uh, no, no please. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, a Canadian airline. My old job is, is suspended service here as we've been on there. But moral um, hazard, right? You know, you bail out this industry and then we have another crisis. And then so what stops the government from bailing them out? Like, where do you draw the line? Absolutely, absolutely. And there's calls, for instance, that uh, if you did stock buybacks or if you get a bailout, you should not be able to do further stock buybacks. And right, right now, Trump, Trump really hasn't commented on that. But I think absolutely he'd be sensitive to this. One of the weird things in this is, you know, he's talking about $500 billion to people. That is, that is a president seeking election while sending checks 
to people. And you might, for instance, think that those checks are absolutely necessary, but also be uncomfortable with the political dynamic right. of this. He also doesn't want to, you know, go into an election year looking like he just bailed out a bunch of his buddies and, you know, in, in companies that acted irresponsibly in the eyes of some people by doing these stock buybacks, and then the cupboard is bare when things took a turn. I mean, anyone is watching what, in particular, these airline stocks have done. Oh right. boy, you know. So I, I think I think it's an open question right now, absolutely, and we just don't have it. We don't have clarity. All right. Well, uh, Scout has arrived home at Carol Masters' house, but <laughs> I do want to. Uh, way better than a normal <laughs> exactly. head, you know, it's great. Scout I has some questions dog. about a bailout. I'm yeah, just going to tell you. Scout has some questions. Uh, so, Josh, I got to ask you because you gave me an opening. You know, you and I got to know each other when you were, you know, covering Ottawa, not Washington. And I do wonder, you know, the moves today on both sides of the Canadian-U.S. border, uh, pretty striking. Uh, help us just in in a minute or so, sort of synthesize everything that's happening between the two countries, between the two leaders. Yeah, I think Trudeau is uh, able to do things a little more unilaterally than Trump is with the way the governments work there, even though he's got a minority. And what we saw is he rolled out about total aid, about 3% of GDP. What Trump is asking for is something a little little more than that in scale, but whether he get it gets it remains unclear. Trudeau yeah. also has existing programs that he can fire money into the economy more quickly than Trump has. So I think Trudeau has more levers, and we're seeing him use them more quickly, although later than Trump did. But Trump now is, uh, in other words, they're both kind of waking up to it, but Trudeau yeah. is so far moving more quickly than Trump to contain this. And we saw in particular the closing or restricting of the border to leisure travel today. Right. I think it's an open question as to which leader wanted that more. All right. Josh Wingrove, thank you so much. Great insights from the White House and uh, tapping your uh, home country as well. Always appreciate your insights. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. All right. Let's get a sense of what is happening uh, in the markets today. Another huge swing. Yana Barton, co-director of Growth Equities at Eaton Vance. She joins us on the phone from Boston. Uh, Yana, what do you make of a day like today? Well, it's not a good day, lots of red, uh, but I think uh, the most important point is for long-term investors, this is certainly the time where you should be sifting through the rubble. The headlines will get progressively worse. Um, You're going to hear of continued shutdown of retail outlets, uh, spikes in incidents like we talked about, withdrawal of earnings guidance in a couple of weeks, but headlines don't make good long-term investment decisions. So while we can't have any direct precedent to uh, sh- uh, distancing, social distancing. We do have a record of what it looks like on the other side, and consistently long-term investors have made money in the market if your holding period is greater than days or even weeks. So for long-term investors, there are great opportunities and dislocations being presented. I got to say, Yana, I'm not a market timer. I don't believe in it. But I've got to say, when I'm looking at the S&P 500 down almost 30% this year, that I think, you know, there are folks out there saying, man, I could have just, you know, put everything in cash earlier in this year when we hit a record. We had a decent gain already for the year and been safer. Like, what is the balance between, because I've, Jason, like, you know, both Jason and I have done this for a long time, and I understand the idea of long-term investing. You can't time the market, can't get in and out. But there is something to be said. Certainly the big investment guys will tell you something to capital preservation also before you get smacked in a market downturn like this. 
Absolutely. And again, you know, you bring up a good point. Listen, I'm a large cap growth uh, manager. My job is to be fully invested in the market. So for folks that are sitting there with, you know, excessive holdings that are on the riskier side of the equation, I totally hear what you're saying. And that's the importance of diversification at all times. But I will also say, uh, if you're looking on your equity side of the ledger, and you're thinking to yourself, where is the value in the market, you know, versus other safety assets like fixed income, you look at current S&P levels at 2300 here, and you've got an earnings yield that is approaching 7%, approaching in excess of 5%, uh, that's significantly greater than 10-year treasuries here at 1%. So I hear what you're saying, and I'm not saying mm. all in, which is why you have to be active, but I think this is when you're deciphering, hey, within consumer discretionary, I've got stocks that are probably down more than 45 to 50% off their 52-week highs or higher. Right. Maybe right. there's an opportunity there, and that's mm-hmm. all I'm saying. All right. So, Yana, you know, one question that I think a lot of investors have, especially people who are paying attention to the political or the, or the governmental and policy headlines, I should say, is this notion of, a bailout. And, you know, some industries may get bailed out in all of this. Some may not. That's going to be a topic of pretty strenuous debate, it feels like, there in Washington. How do you factor that in when you're starting to think about sectors and names? I think most of us would agree that the word bailout has sort of a a very negative uh, association in our lexicon, only because of the last time we went through this, there were only a certain number of uh, industries and companies that were bailed out, right? I think what you're seeing here, the fiscal response that is on the come and coming in every minute, is really trying to balance that uh, capital side of the equation with uh, the Main Street, right? Individual um, individuals that are going to be hard hit if they lose their jobs or can't go out and do everyday things, right? So it's striking that balance, and it will be very difficult. I think companies um, and profitabilities of companies is going to be extremely important. Cash on hand, access to liquidity um, and credit markets, that will continue to be important both on the corporate side as well on as well as on the individual um, investment side. So um, it's striking that balance, but I will have to say, and I think you will agree, that the policy response both on the monetary and the fiscal side of the equation has been extraordinary. And I think given the market fluidity that we're and, and the, the unforeseen events we're dealing with um, has been the right call. So I think we're going to see much more. Um, and that certainly is the right side of the optimistic ledger that we're watching. Well, but it's hard to be optimistic, you know, just recapping where we are in terms of the markets right now for everyone and our listeners. S&P 500 down 198 points. That's a 7.9% decline to the downside. Dow Jones Industrial Average down 1,874 points, down 8.9%. 19,365 is where we are on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. NASDAQ down 520 points. That works out to a decline of 7%. So I hear what you're saying, and I know you have to invest you know, for clients. So having said that, I do hear, uh, I feel like a little bit of optimism in your voice. Yana, does that mean you are buying equities specifically we, right now? And if so, are. what, Absolutely. what are you, bu- what are you buying? 
So um, as you mentioned, capital preservation is at, uh, probably most critical component of what we're doing. We manage a lot of tax-managed accounts, and that's sort of in our blood, right? You're constantly harvesting losses because it offsets gains in the portfolios. And what we're doing is we're upgrading the quality of the portfolio as well. So we're doing a, a lot of different pair trades, you know, particularly within the industrial space where the cyclicality and the, and the impact on those companies will be the same because of the macro-driven um, factors there. So there are a lot of pair trades where we're harvesting losses in something and going into something else. I mentioned the consumer space. We're upgrading the quality. Um, I mean, you're looking at large-cap quality businesses with solid balance sheets, scale, um, all of the advantages that we're talking about within the Internet space, um, retail space, restaurant space, you name it. We're in there because we do believe that we'll make it on the other side and they're going to be even stronger than today. And I think um, in the healthcare space that has finally been defensive in this downturn, there's also a lot of um, a lot of opportunities that are brewing on the biotech space. Again, as a as an investor, I think by nature I recognize that there is a sense of optimism that all of us must have because if we're investing in these equities today, we have to believe that tomorrow is better than today, and maybe that tomorrow is you know a few days out from like T plus one. That being said, the secular growth stories that I've shared with you guys in the past, they're not going to go away. Mm. I mean, are we going to be shopping less or more online? And look at uh, look at the implication of our daily lives on cybersecurity, remote networking, all of those things. That's, that's only going to intensify. And the companies that are participating in these secular growth trends are going to thrive. They're going to thrive. And those are the opportunities we're trying to step up to because a lot of these names with higher growth profiles are selling at a, at a multiple so, you haven't so, seen in years. So buy what right now? I can't go into specifics for stocks, but okay. I mentioned healthcare. So a lot of med device companies, while they are being hit by elective procedures that are, um, you know, being postponed. The flip side of it is think about, you know, next-gen sequencing companies. By the way, the coronavirus was sequenced in a matter of weeks, not months, yeah. uh, as in previous SARS. So companies that are providing that intel. When you think about robotic surgery, again, less than 5% of all surgeries today are uh, are performed by these robotic instruments, and that's only going to increase because of the safety profile. Um, and then uh, many pharmaceutical companies that are going to be the, the answers to perhaps the biotech warfare that might be, you know, the next yeah. sort of warfare we're fighting, and we're in one today. Um, right. So I, those I'm are just some examples. Yeah, I'm interested to hear you say that, Yana, because, you know, this whole notion of, and we've been talking about it a lot over the past hour or so, this notion that the president is now talking about wartime footing in in many ways. I mean, we're closing borders. We obviously are not in a militaristic footing at this moment, but you do have to wonder about, uh, I would think, defense and, and aerospace at this point, right? Absolutely, and that's one area within the industrial space, interestingly enough, that has been the hardest. I mean, obviously, um, you know, if you look at a cap-weighted profile of those companies, many of them are off over 40%. So, I mean, 
I think if you think about aerospace and defense, uh, you know, if I were to ask any of your listeners, are you ever going to fly again, most of them will say yes. Maybe not tomorrow or in two weeks, but I am pretty sure we're going to get on the plane again. And um, in terms of defense, I mean, it's, I think just the definition of what it means to be, um, you know, next-gen defense company is going to change, perhaps outside of just the industrial space. So that's, um, that's one area that we're particularly keen on. And yeah. I already touched on the consumer. But it's broad-based. And listen, it doesn't feel good. I mean, the stats that you mentioned, I'm looking at them, unfortunately, tick by tick. Mm-hmm. But, you know, sometimes the greatest investment opportunities are presented when it feels the worst. So it's time to get uncomfortable with feeling the way we do and, um, again, gradually, um, you know, nibble um, at, these, at these levels. Yeah. No, Good to hear that um, optimism, at least in terms of the outlook. Yana, thank you so much. Yana Barton, she's co-director of growth equities at Eaton Vance uh, on the phone from Boston. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.